Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a joy to have my guest, Victor Antonio, who is a trainer, speaker, and author in the sales arena. Victor, welcome. Marcus, thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. My pleasure. Victor, you've been in sales for quite some time. We've both lost our hair doing it. Tell me something. What's the journey been like to get here? It's been an interesting journey. I I started out as a, uh, I got my background as an electrical engineering degree. And I had a moment, I always tell people I had a moment, I was designing wireless systems. To make a long story short, I was I was assisting a guy by the name, his name was Ken Cook. We're bidding on a big wireless system. He's the sales guy, Marcus. I'm the technical guy. I'm doing all the real work, designing the stuff. One day, Ken calls me up, says, Victor, we won the deal. $5 million, brother, I'm taking you out to lunch. Takes me out to lunch, to a nice steakhouse. I'm all happy. I come back to the office, all fat, dumb, and happy. And there's that one guy always in your office. Just going to knock you down a few pegs. His name was Roy. Roy said, Victor, what are you smiling about? I said, man, we just won this $5 million deal. You know, and Ken, the sales guy, just took me out to lunch. He said, Victor, let me ask you a question. How much do you think Ken spent on you on that lunch? I said, man, the guy had to drop at least 50 bucks on me. And I even had a beer. Man, so I was rolling. And he said, uh, he said, let me ask you a second question. How big do you think his commission check was on your system? Yeah. I, it just, I, I, I felt that, that, that steak flip in my belly. You know what I mean? At that point, I go, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong game here. And so it's around 93, I think I got into sales, if I could date myself a little bit. And I love sales. By the way, when I got into sales, it's like I hit my natural hyper pad. So it's been fun. It's a great journey. So tell me this, what are the four most common mistakes that you see people making when they're building a sales organization? From a leadership perspective, I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes is that you think that because you were in sales, you can also be a manager. I think that's the big one right there because there's selling and then there's managing. And too often I see managers try to be managers and salespeople at the same time. They really don't know how to groom people underneath them. I think that's the biggest one. And there's a learning curve involved in that. And I think how you talk to your sales team becomes also an art because you know, when you're in sales, you're front line, Marcus. We're like in your face, like now, nah, right? But now when you're a manager, now you have different personalities, different needs, different wants. And so you have to have more of a nurturing patience. By the way, I'm not saying baby them, but you got to really understand what really motivates them and take time to do that. And so that I said that would be the second one, not understanding, you know, how to talk to your salespeople. One thinking you should, you're also in sales. I've seen many sales managers interrupt salespeople because they just take over the meeting. I think the third one is they don't know how to nurture struggling salespeople. I'm giving you variations of the same thing, but they're, they're, they're quite different. In other words, when a salesperson is struggling, how do you nurture them? Because they're not you. So you were successful. You became a manager. And now you superimpose what you believe they should be doing or how they should be doing it. And I think having a, a struggling salesperson plan, I think, is another thing I don't see a lot of. And if I can throw number four in there just for the heck of it, a good compensation plan design a great compensation plan. I'd love to discuss that in a little bit more detail. Essentially, I see managers as having four functions in sales. Hire the best people, Mm -hmm. get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, and then help them to clear the path and protect them from idiocy from above. And yes, you focus on the last one. Yeah. That last one you just mentioned is heavy because, you know, you really have to protect your salespeople from the top. 
you know, usually the forces of uh, management come in and try to tell your salespeople what they should be focusing in on. So you're absolutely right. What's been your experience on that? I mean, where, where did that come from? 35 years of scar tissue. <laughs> I've had one great manager and a number of very mediocre managers over the years. And what they did was they let me fail, but they didn't let the business fail. And they coached me, they encouraged me, but they also held me to account. And most of the time in other roles before I set up on my own, which was half my career ago, I was being beaten with a stick or beaten with a carrot. You know, you talk about compensation schemes and the tendency there is to think that people are motivated by money, but salespeople generally aren't. They're motivated by what you can do with the money and the choices that you can make. But actually, that normally comes lower down the pecking order. As a headhunter for 10 years of salespeople, what I realized was that salespeople were motivated by achievement, by recognition, by doing interesting and meaningful work. And I got frustrated with this idea that salespeople are just these sort of blood-hungry or money-hungry sharks that go out there. No, I think that's not true. good. So... Why is it sales persists in having this terrible and largely justifiable reputation? I would push back on the largely justifiable, by the way, because I think Hollywood has had a hand in this thing, right? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? The author Miller stories and, and things of that nature, the, the stereotypical car salesperson, right? And the reason I bring that up is because I think that's been portrayed out there. I think that's all we see sometimes is the slicks. Well, we don't have any hair. I was going to say slick-haired salesperson, but, you know, the slick, bald-headed salesperson. But it's not justified in the sense because I've met too many salespeople who like money. And you said something key. It's not the money. It's the options they have with the money. That's the big, big difference. And on top of that, what I've also discovered is that a lot of these salespeople who have longevity, who are around for a long time, these are people who really serve their customers. They want to make money, but they want to serve at the same time. If they can go hand in hand. And I've met more like that than your archetypical or stereotyped type of salesperson. That's been my experience. My experience is that there are a lot of salespeople and the ones who survive absolutely fulfill those conditions. What, What I'm concerned about, I rail against how poor the quality is in sales. And I don't blame the salespeople. I absolutely put that at the foot of leadership, not even the managers. I think managers are the most undertrained people within an organization, and they're in the most precarious role because one or two bad quarters and they're out, and they get no training. The typical uh, route to management is being tapped on the shoulder and saying, Victor, your idiot manager's been fired. Congratulations, you're now the idiot manager. And like you said, the skill set is wildly different. The temperament is wildly different. And most people do what was done. You know, to it's them. funny because, you know, that is a great point, by the way. Most people do what was done to them. I think that's an exceptional point. I was going to add that it is a 50-50 deal, I like to remind people. You're, you're absolutely right. As we talked about already, sales people who go into management are ill-prepared in so many ways. But also, you know, I see salespeople who are ill-prepared. They don't take personal accountability for their own training. Absolutely. And that, that's always been an issue. You with me. It's almost like, you know, well, my company doesn't have a training program. My so company what? didn't. Yeah, that's exactly what I, by the way, my most popular video on YouTube, it's under, uh, it's called sales of excellence, how to be a great salesperson. And in there, I just go on to a 15 minute rant <laughs> about 
Yeah, it's, it's a rant. Marcus, it's a rant. And it's a rant about taking control of your own training, viewing yourself as a profit center. And you, you know, if you're your own profit center, then you build your own business, so to speak, your own mindset, your own tool set, your own skill set, and not wait for somebody to hand it to you. That's my pet peeve. When somebody tells me, my management didn't train me. We don't have a training program. I'm like, so what? Look, I mean, look at this podcast. Grow a pair. What's, What's that? Grow a pair. Most salespeople, bluntly, are functionally illiterate. The minute they left school or college, they stopped reading, they stopped investing in themselves, and there's no lack of good quality information out there. There's an awful lot of crap, let's be honest. Yeah. And there are lots of people peddling the latest fad in terms of, you know, cold calling doesn't work. It does if you do it well, just as emailing works if you do it well, and content production does if you do it well, and social media does if you do it well. But by and large, what most salespeople are um, are one-trick ponies who do what they learned first. And when they say they have 15 years experience, what they mean is they've got one year's experience 15 times over because they haven't invested Mm. in themselves. They don't set themselves a daily target for learning. They don't capture the lessons. They don't do pre-call plans. They don't rehearse. Then they don't come off and do a written post-call debrief and then a verbal debrief, capture the lessons, add to their pre-call planning process and their template. And as a result, they're not learning iteratively. What tends to happen is they wait for the company to feed them from the fire hose so that within two or three days, they've forgotten 90% of it. And two months later, they're back to normal. And I know on your profile, you have the, uh, the uh, epithet of being a motivational speaker. So I want to challenge that because I think motivation sure. is an internal force and you cannot yes, motivate anyone to do anything ever. Now, I understand for marketing purposes, but I, I'd like to discuss that. We talk about salespeople not taking accountability and taking responsibility for their own development. And I firmly believe that the best salespeople have that inner fire and nothing will stop them from improving. Nothing will stop them from getting better. And their motivation is driven from inside. It's not through extrinsic bribes like competitions or even how the comp plan works and fiddling that. It's really about wanting to elevate themselves and they're competing with who they were yesterday and aiming to be better tomorrow. What are your thoughts on that? One, I agree with you on the motivation piece, 100%. So, you know, the, the reason I use sales and motivation, because I think there's, there, there's a combination there. I said, I, can't, I always tell people, I can't motivate people to do something. I yeah. can only provide, I say, the mental nudge in the right direction. And a mental nudge to me is like, you're giving somebody a piece of insight maybe they didn't have. You know what I mean? Maybe gave them a way of looking at something. And that's what I mean by motivation. I, I don't mean this. You're the best. You're the greatest. Tomorrow, you can go out and do whatever. You know, that whole, you're like, oh, because it's like a placebo, right? It's like, yeah, you feel good about yourself when you, you know, you left there. But as soon as reality hits you, you know, life doesn't work that way. You know, it'd be nice if we can just motivate people. But you said something interesting about the, the, um, uh, and Daniel Pink wrote a great book. Author wrote a book called Drive. Yeah. And in there, he talked about how the the best motivated people uh, have work on the third drive. And the way he described the third drive, pretty much what you've said already, is that the first drive are the biological needs, right? Food and all that other stuff, right? The biological needs. Then they tried the second drive, which were the external drives, which is the carrot or the stick, reward or punishment. And then he said, but the third drive is that intrinsic drive, which is what you're alluding to, something from inside. 
And he said, there's, you know, the internal drive has three components. One is people like autonomy. Yeah. Salespeople love autonomy. That was the first one. Second is they love mastery. You've mentioned that as well. They love to grow. That's part of it. And the third one is purpose. And the purpose being, you know, why am I doing this? And is this really helping anybody? So if you can give me the autonomy, I'm growing at the same time, I'm helping people, then I'm motivated to make money. And I, that's the way I encapsulate. That, that's what I mean by, when I talk motivation, I'm talking being aware of your third drive. What is that that fires you up to help other people? Fabulous. I think we're violently in agreement on that. Yeah. So tell me this then. By the way, I only laugh, inside I laugh when you said that because everybody rolls their eyes when they hear that. I'm like, yeah, I rolled my eyes too, but I don't know what else to put there as a word. <laughs> so go ahead. I understand it. And for marketing purposes, it makes sense because when people are looking for a speaker, often right. they'll key in motivational speaker. So forgive me for picking yeah. up on that. But in this lockdown, what I've seen is a handful, and they, they are in the minority, people who've seen this as a fabulous opportunity. And many others have got squeamish about the whole idea of prospecting. And I was listening to an interview with Jim Ziegler, the alpha dog, who is a sort of big player in the automotive sales market for the last 30, 40 years. And in fact, nearly 50 years. And what was really interesting was when he lost everything, the first thing he did was get back into the habit of 100 dials a day. And mm -hmm. what I've seen is that the really, really committed salespeople recognized that this was an opportunity to help people. And mm -hmm. they realized that it was immoral and unacceptable for them not to ply their trade because there were people out there who were hurting and who needed help. I love the way you put that. They thought that it was immoral. A lot of people don't understand that concept of morality. That there's like this, this drive, this code of ethics to provide value where value is needed. Absolutely, and and this is one of the things that really it bugs me, but it also drives me, which is that I fundamentally believe sales is a force for good. The economy depends on salespeople getting out does, there yeah. and doing their job. No, I was going to add a layer to that because. That right there, Mark, is, is, is like what drives me. Do you know what I mean? When people say, why do you like sales? It's because I'm helping companies. I said, you see me selling a product or a service. I see myself helping a company remain sustainable and growing. You know, the ability to scale up. That's how I view my sales training. I'm not selling a product or service. I'm teaching your company how to grow because you have 100 people working for you, Marcus. So if I can help you grow, that's 100 people who are not going to lose their job. By the way, each of those people, probably there's 2.3 persons in their family. So I'm helping them as well. And that's the way I view it. I'm not just helping, you know what I mean? I'm not just selling something. I'm providing Absolutely. value for value. That, I think, is something that conceptually, as salespeople, as a profession, we really need to get into our heads, our hearts, and our gut. Because I think so many people have a pejorative, negative view of sales. And so they end up coming up with avoidance job titles like business development or consultant. And that kind of drivel. You know, if you can't tell your mother you're a salesperson and be proud of it, then get out of the profession or get That's your right. head fixed. So, so many people throughout this COVID period have uh, fallen, they've taken their foot, uh, foot off the gas. They are squeamish about prospecting. 
and they're blaming extrinsic circumstance for their situation. That's correct. And the net result of that is they're putting themselves and all the people who depend on them in jeopardy. Their jobs are at risk. And I think over the next 60 to 90 days, we're going to see a bloodbath in the industry. I think a lot of companies will be laying salespeople off. Now, by the way, before before you go on to your next thought, but it's interesting. You remember that Warren Buffett line that, you know, when the tide goes out, we can see who's swimming naked. And the tide has gone out and we can see which salespeople were swimming naked. By that, I mean, the reason they were selling well because the economy was good, especially here in the U.S. I mean, we had low unemployment. You didn't have to sell hard to get make it. And now we're finding ourselves in a situation where you now have to be more aggressive about selling. Just like the gentleman you mentioned for the car sales guy, you know, that now you realize you got to get back on the phone. You got to do something differently. While everybody was whining to me about staying home, I'm like, okay, what do I do? And I created a whole new program for selling virtually because I'm going to sell something. Somebody's going to buy something from me type of thing. And it was interesting that when you're your own business, you can pivot faster. That's the advantage we have as entrepreneurs, right? Larger companies are a little difficult, but I, th- I think it's been an interesting time to reveal who has the skills and who doesn't. To pick up on that point that you made earlier, as a salesperson, you are a personal services corporation selling your expertise for money. And the fact that you happen to have an employment contract is by the by. It's irrelevant. You are personally responsible for every cent and every penny that you generate. And I think one of the problems that we often see is the compensation plan drives the wrong behavior. And I'd like to talk about that. So you said have the right compensation plan right at the beginning. What does the wrong compensation plan look like, first of all? Well, I'm going to refer, there's a book called, I think it's called The Greatest Motivational Principle. It was written back in the late 70s and really hit on this early. I remember I read that book. I remember it's the GMP. That's the title. So I think it's The Greatest Motivational Principle. And it talked about how compensation is the motivator. And you should motivate, you should incentivize right behaviors to your point and obviously disincentivize bad behavior. So when you ask me, what does a good compensation plan look like? It's what you exactly said. You incentivize the right behaviors, but you have to, they're not general KPIs. They're very specific. Here's what I want you to do. Because I think when you design a compensation plan, it's almost like when you see a sniper and you know how he's adjusting for wind velocity, distance range, the whole bit. That's what I think a compensation plan should be. Okay, I need you to hit that right there. Let me adjust this for you. Let me adjust that for you so I can make sure you hit it. That, to me, is a great analogy of a compensation plan. I I love that. Um, Have you read Alfie Cohn's book, Punished by Reward? I will. Write it down. Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N. And his point is that typically competitions, incentive schemes, those kind of things, even gold stars for kids, tend to result in a short-term improvement and then either backsliding or worse behavior. And you see this all the time, Mm -hmm. spiffs and incentives, all that kind of stuff. I think you made Mm -hmm. another really vital point as well, which is that you have to compensate behavior, particularly in the early stage, in the onboarding process. But all money Mm -hmm. is is a benchmark of how much other people value what you do. And if you understand that, then what you should be doing as a manager when you're pre-onboarding, onboarding, and then developing your people is driving the right behaviors. I think it was Warren Buffett said something along the, well, he lifted it from Samuel Johnson. Make the chains of habit so light so that over time, 
they're so heavy they can't be broken. And oh, I love that phrase. That's a great uh, phrase. Uh, absolutely. And the, the, the problem is that too often we focus on measuring the wrong things and we focus on lagging indicators rather than leading indicators. So right. what does the you, – you've talked about the sniper effect in the right. compensation. What are the behaviors that you want to see managers and owners putting into their comp plans that drive mm-hmm. the right behaviors and what are they? I would look for KPIs that would reveal – inadequacies in the salesperson. So for example, I want to see, and let's just say that we, we're in a company, you and I, right? And we're managing a company and over, let's say a six month period, we realize based on the data, we can talk about the AI point later on, how AI will help this. And that is that, look, people who are doing a hundred dollars within this period of time, let's say from 10 in the morning to 12 o'clock seem to have a better, you know, connect rate. Okay. Boom. Let's drive that behavior, right? Let's, let's reinforce that behavior. We also notice that their call to close to meeting ratio, call to meeting ratio and their close ratio is another deal, right? And so what we'll do is measure what's happening in those calls. Are we getting the right numbers? Because then I know that the salesperson maybe is not presenting right or something's wrong with the script. So these are the things that I would look for to begin to reveal what they're not doing. But if we said, what are the basic behaviors? Let's you and I do an exercise. I think the amount of calls you make in a day matter. I also think the amount of people you reach to who you sold to already. So I would say I would put a number for reaching out to existing clients because I want to do a lot of upselling. Uh, I got a book coming out uh, probably next month if everything goes well. It's all about upselling, how it can add almost up to 30% to your revenues if you just call existing clients. And the title of the book is, you know, upselling is the new prospecting, which is how often are you reaching back? And so these are the things I would start to monitor. How often do we contact? And then I would look at wallet size. Wallet size being, you know, how much are we selling to existing clients? And I would look to see what our average deal size is. If I see some salespeople falling low, that would tell me that something's wrong with how they're upselling or positioning the product. And so these are the, this is where I think the AI and machine learning really help because you start pulling out some of this data. That's the easy stuff. But in terms of motivating a behavior, you know, again, I'm looking at calls. I'm looking at how many, how your outreach program, uh, but I'm also looking at your presentation to close rate and your sales cycle. Those are the numbers I look at. I would invent, I would incentivize shorter sales cycles, getting people to close deal faster. So these are the things I believe. Look, the number of opportunities, close rate, average deal size, and sales cycle are the four things that will drive sales. We all know this already. The question is. One, you mentioned earlier, how do we find the right people, Marcus, right? Finding the right people. Two, I want to train them, but I don't want to start from zero. Good skill set right at the beginning. Would you agree with me that they, they got to have the right mindset? That's the hardest part to judge, but that's the big one. I, I agree. I think attitudes, beliefs, and values are critical, but I think there's an even more powerful predictor of success, which is habit. What people do repeatedly in the past, they will do repeatedly in the future. And if you have a prospecting habit, a listening habit, a questioning habit, a planning habit, an organizational habit, which let's face it, listening, planning, and organization are not necessarily the things that salespeople are known for. And a good money concept, a strong self-concept, a view that you have equal business stature with your prospects and your customers. Because one of the things I see happen way too often is that salespeople put the customer on a pedestal and they give away their power 
because the customer or the prospect allegedly has money and the salesperson doesn't. The salesperson often is needy, desperate and broke because they're, they're overspending. They haven't got good financial acumen. So they're not looking after their own money. They have weak or empty pipelines, which makes them needy and desperate. And that you prospect for choice. You know, by way, by you way, have a full all pipeline. that adds up, right? Uh, all that adds up, what you just said. And it creates the sense of desperation, or at least a mindset of scarcity. Absolutely. And who wants to buy from a needy, desperate, and skint salesperson? It doesn't Nobody. send the right message. So you reflect that you get reflected back what you project out. So I think a huge part of this, which is really important, is in the pre-onboarding, sorry, in the recruitment and selection process, you need to know what you're looking for. But too often, hiring managers are simply cutting and pasting a job description from somewhere else. They're giving it to whoever the recruiter is to look for keywords. And that then results in a massive turnover. Salespeople are turning over on average of between one and two years. It takes three years for someone to really reach their peak within a job and be able to maintain that. A pal of mine, Phil McGowan, is an academic. Uh, he's run eight companies, he's sold them. And when his wife died, he decided to have a change of pace and he became an academic. He's just getting his PhD now. And his research, based on 5,000 pieces of academic research, suggests that it takes 38 months for the business to recover when a salesperson leaves. Now, when you look at the cost of a wrong hire, in an enterprise market, that can be anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary. Managers really need to learn how to recruit predictively and avoid making those stupid mistakes of hiring badly. Better no breath than bad breath in a sales territory. Two things to highlight there, what you just said, because it's a mouthful, great content. One is, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the book, The Challenger Sale. Yeah. You know, when The Challenger Sale came out, I was really happy because that book validated a lot of my thinking that we shouldn't put clients on a pedestal, which you just said, right? Let's not put them on a pedestal. Let's actually be their equals, actually be advisors, you know, the trusted advisor, but not be afraid to challenge them on what their thinking is. I thought that was important. The other thing is this data that you're throwing out that it takes 38 months to recover I got you correct, right? 38 months to recover from a lost salesperson. This is where I think, you know, and I don't think, I know for a fact that AI, if I can just segue there real quickly, is going to help companies because we all know that data is new oil. And I know people overuse that phrase, but here's why I think it becomes a real asset is that all that content, if it's populated in a CRM, we're going to have it. So when this salesperson leaves, we at least have, I'll just say, their intellectual capital captured within the system. If they're, and that's where a manager has to make sure that's documented correctly. So we could reduce that 38 months. And I think that would be powerful. But I get back to having a great manager. Again, to build on that point, I've interviewed Ryan Longfield from Gong and Richard Smith and Kevin Beale from Refract mm-hmm. and uh, Tom Castley. By the way, I love the people from Gong. They're brilliant. You look at what uh, Refract, Chorus, Gong, provide in terms of quality data. You can ramp up Mm -hmm. a salesperson in a fraction. I mean, literally weeks and days instead of months. And you can have them producing. Every mistake can be turned into a lesson when you're using technologies like that. And I think people forget that failure is okay in role as long as you learn from it. If you don't, you're an idiot. 
And this is where the, the yeah. problem is, because so, so often salespeople keep repeating the same mistake and they beat their head against the same bit of brick wall and then they blame the wall for their headache. That's just crazy. And managers who don't document and don't use these technologies, I think, are negligent in their role. And I, I, I don't say that lightly because I think the technology is out there. It's inexpensive. If you go to someone like Refract for $40, $50 a month, you can get this technology. Same thing with Gong. You know, it's not expensive. It's all and out there. It's a lot cheaper than making one butchered sales call. If you stop them from butchering one sales call with a genuine prospect, you've made your money back in spades. You know that only 12% of first meetings result in a second meeting. It's really low. I know the number's low. Well, because again, what is it? Uh, 70, 80% of uh, executives say, I see no value in meeting with a salesperson. KPMG you know, or redoing for the second meeting. KPMG did a study last, uh, released a study last year that said CXOs only derive six minutes of value from a sales call in the hour. That's it's not there. Now, that's no, no, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, Sorry, that's no, no, six minutes like averaged out across all the salespeople. So they're an awful lot that yeah. deliver zero value. And within two minutes, they've decided, get this idiot out of my office. And again, we go back to two things. One is, you know, I've had the pleasure also interviewing folks over at Gong and Chorus and a couple other companies like Seamless.ai. And some of the product technology that's out there is so inexpensive today that years ago, it was unfathomable. You'd have to have your own uh, bunch of scientists, engineers back there just trying to figure out the data. Now it's, you know, easily accessible. The reason I always highlight the Challenger sale is that because that was the first book that I've read that really said, you challenge your customer, be very specific. You got to provide value and insight when you go in there. A lot of these salespeople go in there. They, you know, they go in there, they read the brochure. By the way, who's to blame here? Let's back up here. Who's to blame here for that salesperson not being able to deliver value? I can blame management. I can blame their marketing for not giving them the data, you know, because it's hard to be a salesperson and be the marketing person. So the messaging has to be there. So this is a responsibility from a marketing side. The fact that they don't know what their value is, just like we talked about earlier, I don't sell sales programs. I help companies grow. And I got to come in there with something that they go, huh, I didn't know that. Huh, I didn't see it that way, Victor. Wow, never looked at it that way. That's what these executives want. But if you go in there and tell them what's on your website or your brochure or a case study that they could have read, they're going to say, I know this already. Go deeper. Until salespeople learn to truly empathize with a CXO position, like, you know what I mean by empathize, yeah. Marcus, like feel that gut pain and talk at that level, they're not going to connect. Without question. I mean, at Sander, we do the same thing. Our job is not to be a, walk, a, suit, a brochure in a suit. Yeah. It's not to talk about us, the company, the products, the services, because no one cares. That's like showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. What you need to do is you need to be able to enter into their world. And your credibility comes from the questions that you ask, Every not time. the information that you give. By the way, to emphasize that again for this podcast. It comes from the questions you ask. The quality of the questions you ask will determine the level of access you get in listening. Now, to build on that, the average salesperson, when they ask questions, ask questions to gather normally housekeeping information, the kind of stuff that really doesn't excite anybody. The yeah. better salespeople ask questions to gain understanding. But sure. the best salespeople ask questions that deliver insight. 
When they ask a question, it rips the scales from the prospect's eyes and they say, shit, I've never seen it that way before. That's what I'm talking about. You understand. And again, this comes down, I think, to lack of preparation. In no circumstance, I mean, I've been selling now 34, 35 years, and I have never once come across an original objection. And in every industry, there's between 12 and 30. So you can prep for all of those. Um, And the pains that your prospects have are largely generic within your particular space. In our world, it's hiring the wrong salespeople or the wrong managers, long sales cycles. They're Mm -hmm. failing to close. They have high cost of pursuit. Uh, They have a discounting habit. Their salespeople don't listen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So lack of preparation. There is no excuse for not having half a dozen to a dozen really rock em, sock em, knock their head off quality questions lined up and getting permission to challenge them right up front. Because I think another thing that we see is that salespeople have a tendency to steal time from prospects. They're not permission-based and they don't get permission to ask those tough questions. You talked about nurturing earlier and empathy. Well, I think what the salesperson needs to do is tee it up so that it's okay for them to ask those tough questions. I think I push it further. No, they don't need to tee it up. They need to assume that position. Do you know what I mean? Uh, So for example, uh, I define insight as give me information beyond the obvious. It's information beyond the obvious. Don't tell me shit I already know. Just give me stuff I don't know, right? When I go in there to talk to a client and I'm trying to sell something, I'm not going to wait for him to give a position. He already knows I'm there for a reason. I'm there to sell. He knows it. I know it. It's no secret. I go in there and the first thing he wants to know is, do you understand my business, Victor? Do you understand what I'm struggling with? Demonstrate that for me. And then I demonstrate. When I do presentations at, at that level, I spend the first five or 10 minutes saying, here's what you're going through. You tell me if I'm wrong. And it's amazing when you start saying things, they go, yep, yep. You see that head not like that, like a little pigeon, right? You know, they start nodding. You're like, they get it. He goes, you understand our business. And then you feel a shift in the conversation because now they see you as somebody who gets it. And I keep reemphasizing that point because, you know, what you're saying is powerful is that the questions you ask are important. They said that the average salesperson practices what to say. The best salespeople practice what to ask so they can control the conversation through their questioning. They can actually guide that. But that is a science in and of itself. By science, I guess partly art. But you and I know, Mark, is that, I mean, when was the last time you ever see a salesperson trained on how to ask the right questions and how to develop quality questions? When have you seen that course? I do that all the time, but I've never seen it anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen anybody deliver that formally or really discuss it as much as we're discussing it right here. Again, this is something that strikes me as being incredibly deficient, that despite the fact all the evidence is out there, why on God's earth are people not doing it at a management level? What, you look at your average sales meeting in an office. It's one person lying from a work of fiction and 10 people listening to them lie. It's also known as the fault. Um, and they learn nothing. If managers are smart, they will bookend the week with a kickoff conversation with each salesperson about what are your goals for the week? What are you trying to achieve with those goals? Why are those important? How are you going to measure it? What are the consequences of you not doing it? Do you need help? At the back end of the week, how did you perform against your intended objective? What worked? What didn't work? 
why didn't it work? Why did it work? What did you learn? Can, can I gotcha. help? And sales meetings should be something that you are excited by. I'm a huge fan of Death by Meeting by Patrick Lencioni and his whole idea that meetings should be something that you're excited about going to, you're energized when you're there, and you come out full of vigor because it's been more exciting than going to the movies. And I think salespeople don't learn because they're, they're being forced to, into reporting. Now, you talked about CRM. You know, CRM is viewed by most salespeople as just a, an administrative burden. Yeah, that's like a KGB why, tool to monitor people. That's all it is. It's used why, as a is it, why would they invest in technologies like that and only 20% of the data is any use? It's by the way, crazy. because that's a, bail, that's a bad sales job done by their management. Absolutely. And why we're using this CRM. But I want to go back to something you said about training salespeople. Let's, let's go there because I, I want to highlight something. And I'm going to come at you sideways on this one. So be prepared. This is coming sideways, okay. but you might be able to catch it. I got hired by a company. Got hired by a company. Yeah, got hired by a company, Marcus, right? And they say, we got this guy. True story. I've told this story many times. His name was Larry. Larry was an old dog. Like, like man, like this guy's been in sales forever in a day. Gray haired, the whole thing. Big, good, ha, ha, ha. That guy down here in the South, right? And he had to be, he's got to be about 65 plus, right? Easy. But company says, hey, this guy who's in your state is out selling 10 salespeople, right? Younger than him, 10 to one. He's out selling them. And he says, Victor, what we need you to do is to figure out what Larry's doing to sell effectively. To which I said, why would you pay me? Just go ask Larry what he does. And he said, we did. I said, well, what did he say? He said something like this, man. I just go out there, talk to the customers, and I sell. That's just, you know, that's my sales plan right there, Victor. You know, so that's what we told them, right? And I was like, and they're like, okay. Uh, and I said, uh, okay. Uh, he says, look, what we want you to do is shadow him for two weeks. And then shadow him for two weeks, see what he does, and we'll pay you. And I'm like, all right, I'm not an idiot. You're going to pay me, I'll pay you. I'm just going to do ride-alongs with this guy. And this gonna be. He said, then we just want you to write up the sales process, right? Great. So I remember I meet Larry over at a bar called Taco. And I said, Taco, man. He said, I said, Larry, look, they want me to shadow you for two weeks to get your sales process down, man. He said, because they're trying to figure out what you're doing, right? What's your secret sauce? He says, why don't you just save me the time? This is after having one beer with him. Why don't you just save me the time? I can write this up, make good money. We can just both enjoy ourselves. He said, Victor, let me tell you what I do. I go in there. I talk to the customer. Close the deal. I'm like, son of a biscuit with this guy, right? So sure enough, I said, I guess I got to follow you around to see what you do. And so I follow Larry around. And I remember we went to the first, we, it was, by the way, this telecom company, went to the first central office, right? And we get in there and he introduces me, I don't know, some type of sidekick, right? Supervisor of the central office, the chief technical officer equivalent, right? Greets us and he wants to show us his layout, right? His central office, right? So sure enough, we walk in and then Larry says, yeah, that right there. Oh, that's a good piece of equipment right there. That's a dot, 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 CRX 950, whatever. That's a good piece of equipment. And then Larry just keeps highlighting all these pieces of equipment. I said, oh, that right there, that's really good. That, and he goes on and finally gets to one piece of equipment. He said, now that right there, that right there is a piece of shit. <laughs> and I was like, my jaw dropped, Marcus. My jaw like hit the ground, right? And I remember I looked over at the supervisor and the supervisor looked at him and he said, yeah, that wasn't a good buy. I have to agree with you on that. And at that moment, I felt this connection. <laughs> it, 
And then if I can finish the story, there's a payoff here. What happened was this was good, went on for two weeks and I finally wrote up, it took me about a month to write up Larry's sales process because he did have one. Went back to Taco Mac. I said, Larry, I hate to break it to you, but you do have a sales process. Here it is. And as he was drinking a beer, I'm swear to you, he's flipping pages with me on a sales process, like 38 pages. You go, yep, I do that. Yep, that's what I do. Larry was suffering from something called Polanyi's Paradox. Polanyi's Paradox is that you know it, but you can't explain it. Yeah. And I think a lot of managers who are, who are used to be great salespeople have that problem. Yeah. And I want to highlight this because nobody talks about this. And they go into management, and then when a salesperson comes and says, man, well, how do I close the deal? Just go in there. That's what I do. Just talk to them. That's not training. And so I highlight that because if we're going to move people into those positions, we have to make sure that they know how to train people and not suffer from that Polanyi's paradox. Thought I'd share that with you because that's always in my head all the time. That's a very common problem, and particularly where we have player coaches, player managers, and mm-hmm. I have a real issue with that as well. Because mm-hmm. under pressure, the, the manager will naturally revert to hitting their quota and they'll drop the management side of things. In the early stages of a business, I kind of understand why people do it. But in larger organizations, I think that absolutely is a no-no. Your thoughts on that? Correct. Okay, so thanks for that. That was succinct. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> okay. Because, so, I mean, it's... We can go, by the way, that could be a podcast in and of itself. Absolutely. So I'll invite you back for that one because I suspect we can uh, do more. Tell me this, in terms of how you see AI evolving with the sales profession, what's your vision for that? So as you know, I wrote a book called Sales Ex Machina, which is how AI is changing the world of selling. And, you know, what happened was that I, I was working with a company and I saw what they were doing with their call centers, much a lot like what Gong is doing but this was like three, four years ago, they were analyzing voice tracks to determine what clients were more likely to buy than not, right? So they were doing a lot of sentiment analysis, you know, really looking at keyword clouds that customers were using. And I saw the power in that. So I said, okay, this is coming. So I believe that, first of all, the, broad, the big picture is that AI is going to augment the salesperson, yeah. not replace, augment. And in the book, I talk about if we were to list out every task a salesperson has to do, like literally every task, Marcus, where AI really is going to help them is it can automate the repetitive tasks. And, and that's going to allow them to actually sell more. I think it was inside sales and also salesforce.com did a study that the average person spends about maybe only 30 to 35% of their day actually selling. So two thirds of their day, they're not selling and they're doing research. They're, you know, they're reading stuff. And so if AI can find a way to supplement that or complement that so they don't have to do that, then they can spend more time. To me, that's, we talked about, remember, the selling behavior? We need to get them beyond the 30 to 35% you know, actual selling. Dave Brock did a study on time speaking to the customer, and the average that he found was 12 to 21%. Now, that, really? was, okay. that was this year. Okay. I don't know whether or not it's dropped or it was, a, you know, it was the group that he researched. I think, the, I think the study by, I was going to say the study by Salesforce and Inside Sales, I think it was 2018. So, okay. What we've seen is last year was the first year that fewer than 50% of salespeople hit their quota. Sandler mm-hmm. did a research study on this and only 44% of individual reps hit quota. Only 13% yeah. of teams hit quota. 
Yeah, because isn't it CSO Insights also another company that tracks it here in the U.S. and it's been dropping and maybe flattening out. But I never, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know it went below fifty. That's interesting. What's also really interesting that came out of the research, Jonathan Farrington is the head of research for the, the SRC, and his findings were that only six percent of sales managers globally are qualified for the role. Now, that really is quite a telling insight into why sales performance is dropping. And I suspect this year, I think, will be a bump because obviously the COVID and lockdown and so on. But we're in the third generation of managers who have no idea how to prospect. We're in the third generation of managers who have little or no idea how to coach. And they confuse telling with coaching. So I'd like to explore, just to wrap up, the whole function around coaching and how AI can be used to help managers really coach their people. Yeah, I'm I'm loving this conversation with you because, you know, as you're talking, I'm also thinking about things like, and we'll talk about the coaching one, but even as as the numbers decline in terms of people hitting their actual quota, I mean, we can do another segment on, you know, how was that number developed in the first place, right? That would be one little little data point. The other data point would be how many actual buyers are actually or stakeholders actually involved in the buying decision, right? Because that's another variable that to throw in there. Yeah. And then the quality of coaching and management level or skill sets that the actual people actually have. And, and on the coaching side, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I think I read one study and I'm just kind of fingering the wind. I think it, it, what it says that we should, as managers, we need to spend at least two hours a month with each salesperson to really nurture them long. Three hours? Three, three hours. hours. Okay. If, if you coach for three to three and a half hours a month, the average quota attainment is 105%. If you coach for less than that, the average quota attainment is between 40 and 60. Wonderful. You're like a walking database. I love it. And so if you look at those numbers, but the thing is, it's not scalable, is it? Once you start getting to a sales force of 50, 60, 70 people, by the way, by say one manager coaching that many people, at what point does it not become feasible anymore? I don't know what that number is. Why would you have a reporting structure of one to 50? That doesn't No, I'm saying if that is, if I'm scaling a business, then I have to make sure that even the people I bring in, as I move my structure up, right, add layers of managers, direct reports underneath me, they need to be managed on coaching. In other words, I had to teach my coaches how to coach. Absolutely. I was interviewing Tom Shodorf, who took Splunk from 42 million to 1.5 billion in five mm-hmm. years. And 50% That's of amazing. Phenomenal. Yeah. 50% of his time is spent coaching. Chris Dudridge is at UiPath. They've grown 6,000% in the last two years. He spends mm-hmm. 50% of his time coaching. Tom Castley, Outreach, 50% plus of his time is coaching his people, coaching managers right. and managers spending time coaching. Coaching is... I think, by the way, things. are these are these guys over there? Is that a curiosity? Okay. Um, Chris Dudridge and uh, Tom Castley are in the UK, but John Delogier, 8 by 8 he's in the US. Jim Legg, Thycotic, they've gone from 10 million to half a billion in five years. Coaching. I've never heard, and by the way, wait, and, and I thank you for opening my eyes to this. I've never heard anybody co- using that much time to coach, you know, dedicating that much time to coach their people. That's the amazing. CEO of Thycotic, Jim Legg, spends 50% of his time coaching his senior management. And that actually works as trickle-down because everyone from the, uh, the CEO down is coaching, coaching, coaching. And it becomes part manage- of the culture. 
and exactly, and it needs to be part of the culture. And in fact, you test for that. Uh, you test for coachability in the recruitment process. So mm-hmm. you do a role play or you do something and you give them feedback and then you do it again and see whether or not they're Just see how they respond, yeah. And Just see if they actually integrate any of it. Absolutely. Because if they're not coachable, then why are you hiring them? If you're running a hyper-growth business, you need people who are comfortable and adaptable with change. The business that you start off on the 1st of January will not be the same business by the end of Q1, Q2, or Q3. So when you Mm -hmm. hear people whining and saying, oh, God, are we changing that again? Yes, we are, because we're a different business. And if you want to achieve massive, sustainable scale, you need to not only have a culture that changes the norm, but you're going to coach people through it. You're going to put the Mm -hmm. systems in place to support it. And the the red thread that runs through all of these companies or the red threads they hire really well. They do not compromise on recruitment. Right. There is a pre-onboarding and an onboarding process where right. people listen to the calls. So they're using technologies like Gong, Refract, Chorus, and they're providing the reps those calls beforehand so they can listen to it. By the time they're on board, they're already familiar with the talk tracks. They're familiar with what works and what doesn't work um, so that they can get up mm-hmm. to speed faster. There is an ongoing process of coaching, training, development, mentoring, accountability. People are held responsible and they hold themselves to account. They are looking to implement the right habits in the first 120 days in many of these organizations, typically 90, but 120 is better. There is an onboarding process. What do they need to know? By when do they need to know it? Where can they find it? How will it be measured and to what standard? And what are the consequences of not achieving those objectives? Uh, so that you can hire slow and fire fast. What one A player is worth nine to 12 C players. Why would you not wait and not have you know, bad breath in the territory uh, and wait until you can get the right one? Which means recruitment is a manager's equivalent of prospecting. You should be hiring every day or you should be recruiting every day. And what, what I don't see is recruitment is, or what I do see is recruitment is seen as a chore and an interruption to the manager's day, as is coaching. And those are the two things that get sacrificed when times are tough. They're the two things you need to double down on and do well when times are tough. So, okay, tell me this, Victor, what are you inspired by? What are you listening to, watching, reading, that you think, yeah, that's great material. That's stuff that everybody should be paying attention to. I try to read about maybe, you know, three, maybe four books a month. I just finished up a book by Dr. Susan, I forget her last name. Something uh, is called Impossible to Ignore. And the concept there is really fascinating because it's, it's how do you get people to remember what you said, think sales presentation, when you're no longer there? You know, how do you put stuff in their brain? And then how does memory work? I'm recently fascinated, inspired by, I'm, in, I'm on this memory thing now. And it is what people remember about you, but how do you get people to remember certain things? Because everything, remember, the brain, and I think she said it interesting, goes, the brain is like, and it reminded me of AI, it's like a predict, it's a prediction engine. Your brain is a prediction engine. By that, she meant this. If you have to make a cold call, right? Your brain immediately rushes back to its memory past and pulls back all these experiences it had, and then it projects forward what that experience might be now. This is where people have that call reluctance. And I find that fascinating that what's buried in your brain on your past can impact how you're going to do something in the future. 
And so things of that nature really, conversations like this really excite me because it's like, you know, what I enjoyed uh, listening to you as well as talking to you is that we're going beyond the obvious. You know what I mean? The ABCs of selling. Peel back the layers of what's really going on and some of the subtleties because we got the big parts figured out. We got the bricks all laid down, but it's the mortar in between the bricks that we need to figure out what sticks, what doesn't. Absolutely. And I think uh, the book, by the way, is by Carmen Simon, for those of you who'd like to go. Carmen Simon, thank you very much. And I think selling as a profession is really about slight edge. I'm a huge fan of the half a percent principle. If you improve by half a percent per day, which is not beyond the capability of any human being alive, over the course of one year, you will have improved 283% more than you were. So you will be nearly three times better. You will mm-hmm. produce three times more. In two years... By the way, just to, just to bore you with how much of a nerd we both are, I've ran the 1% numbers. You'll yep. 2X yourself within like 70 days. You'll 10X yourself at about 236 days. You'll 37X yourself by 365 days. How's that for nerdish? Uh, absolutely. We're, we're, I, I think we <laughs> might have been separated at birth for nerdish. <laughs> This is something that, again, anyone can do if you are willing to put the time and the discipline in of incremental improvement. And you're competing with who you were yesterday. Don't bother comparing yourself with anybody else other than who you were yesterday and aim to be better tomorrow. See, that that, that phrase right there, that should be put on a plaque, right? Stop comparing yourself with other people. Just compare yourself with who you were yesterday. It's that simple. Absolutely. Well, it's it's like golf. I'm really bad at golf. And what, I've, what I learned is when I stopped trying to worry about the last shot or the next shot. No, no, I'm going to correct you, Marcus. You're not bad at golf. You're not good yet. <laughs> See the difference? <laughs> at some point, I really ought to get it back, back out on the course to prove you right. Yeah. You're not bad at golf. You're just not good yet. <laughs> it's well, much actually, more positive. The book's by Bob Rotella, all about the psychology of Say golf. Say that again. Bob Rotella, R-O-T-E-L-L-A. He's a golf coach, but you can replace okay. golf, golf and golfing with sales and selling. And every word of it Easy. applies. Because actually selling and golf are mental games. It's the six inches between your ears that make the difference. Every time. Okay, so tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. You could whisper in Victor's ear, age 23, when you were a full idiot, you were invincible, immortal, and always right. Uh, What advice would you give him to prevent a lifetime of self-sabotage and idiocy? The thing I always say is I I would tell myself, don't be so hard on yourself. This too shall pass, pass rather. Because what happens is that, you know how sometimes you get in your head too much and you just psych yourself out. I think that happened a lot to me. And I don't know when it happened, but I, I always say that the toughest road to success is the road back to you. By that, I mean this, is that, too often we're trying to be other people, trying to do it their way, doing the way we were taught. But it isn't until you start selling your way, doing it the way that makes you feel comfortable, that you, that, and that's the road back to you. Once you figure out that road back to you and how you do it, that would be the second thing I'd tell Victor. Just figure out your style, man. You know, listen to everybody else. As Bruce Lee said, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and then add what is uniquely yours. That's power. I, I should be stealing that quote. What's interesting there is you've actually mirrored the Sufi philosophy and Chinese philosophy. In Chinese philosophy, you are born perfect. And then you start developing a shell and you start taking on other people's baggage. 
in Sufism, there is a, an instrument called the ney. It's a flute. And it has this incredibly beautiful but melancholic sound. And in Sufism, they say that the reason for that is the reed was cut from the marshes and it's longing to go back. It's mm. longing to go back to its origins. That's actually and, quite beautiful, man. That's actually quite is, beautiful. Yeah. What's really fascinating is that too often we um, take on the mantle of other people. We carry other people's baggage. We, don't, we inherit and we borrow other people's beliefs and values. And we don't look in the mirror and see the essence of who we are. In sales, I think it is a, it's a very vulnerable place to put yourself. Yeah, it's a tough job. And that's why we get paid big bucks. It's also why we get paid very little if we do it badly. Because unless you are authentically you and you are there to serve, unless you are paying really close attention to what is being yep. said and you're listening to what and how it's being said, but also what's not being said, and you're right. not responding to the... By the way, that, by the way, put an emphasis on that. Put an emphasis on that. It is what's not being said. It's not what you see. It's the gaps of what you're not seeing. On the money. And the, the problem is that salespeople do not take enough time to reflect. So one bit of advice I would give is at least once a week, but preferably every day, sit down for 40, 45 minutes with a notepad, a pen, and a question, and no interruptions, and spend time thinking. Salespeople do not spend enough time thinking. Managers, leaders do not spend enough time thinking. If we spent more time in introspective reflection and challenging ourselves with good, insightful questions that make us stretch our minds, we would do better. By the way, I'm going to tie this to the 1% rule here. You got 1,440 minutes in a day. Again, my nerd side coming out. If you just dedicate 1% of that time, which is 14 minutes and 14.4, call it 15, a day, there's your 1% improvement. For those of you who need a, a, a tangible metric, there it is. 15 <laughs> minutes, almost 1% a day. How's that? <laughs> Excellent. Uh, we, we shall have to compare nerdiness sometime. So, Victor, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think the, the, for me right now, what happened was when the COVID hit, and it's a good struggle, not a bad struggle, but not a struggle nonetheless, is, you know, I'm not used to doing all live events. And so when COVID hit here in the U.S. and everything was shut down, nuclear winter for my calendar, like nuclear winter, man, like nothing. Everybody canceled on me, right? And that was pretty much about, I think, about 80% of my revenue, you know, as a 1099 independent contractor, boom, gone. Now, the good thing is that I had tools. That's what I said. Okay, remember, it's not what you do with what you don't have. It's what you do with what you do have that matters. So I go, oh, what do we have here? I said, well, I have the Sales Velocity Academy, which is my online platform. Push the metal down on that. Let's go on. Webinars, started doing that more and then doing the coaching. And the one thing I'm struggling with is, by the way, so revenues are up, Victor's happy again. But now I'm actually going, wait a minute, I kind of like staying home and not having to travel anywhere. I think I might like this. I think in a year from now, I would have almost flipped the 80-20 now to online versus offline on real, you know, and in person. So that, that's been the challenge, right? Rebalancing that. I think the other challenge is, is developing a more, deciding how to really segment my time. Because now I got... Before it was just, I show for 45 minutes, kill the keynote, bye-bye, right? Now I have to manage my time better. 
because now I got coachings, I got webinars, I got content to produce. So managing all that for a person like me who has ADHD bad <laughs> is quite the challenge, right? And so I, I you know, I, I try to develop calendars, and that's usually what I'm struggling with right now. Because usually my calendar was simple: show up to these events, go deliver something, make some money, right? Deliver value, make money. Now it's I'm doing more smaller things that add up to that big revenue number. Are you time blocking your diary? I do. I do time block. In fact, um, started time blocking. I actually did a course just to kind of make sure that I was doing it first. And I did a, I got a course called Time Management that basically is all about time blocking and how to use your time. Finding your, as Dan Ariely, the neuroscientist said, remember the guy who wrote Predictably yep. Irrational? Predictably Irrational, uh, yep. He said, yeah, he said, everybody has two golden hours, right? And so I had to figure out what were my two golden hours where I'm hyper-focused. And that's for me, it's between five in the morning and seven. That's when I just crank numbers. But I also read a book by Daniel Pink. Again, I, this I want to share with you because I think you'll find it fascinating. I think you'll be able to layer some good stuff on this. He wrote a book called When last year, like when. And what he found in a nutshell was in the morning for about 80, 90% of us, we're like peaking, right? Somewhere around 11 or 12 o'clock, we start dying. We start crashing at about three or four o'clock, but about, and then about six or seven o'clock, you start coming back up, right? So he said, in the morning, you do your focused work, stuff that needs to get done. Middle of the day, you know, your brain's not in there. You do the administrative work, low cognitive loading work, right? He says, towards the evening, you do your creative work. But then he tied it to business. He says, if your customers are in that same rhythm, that means you don't want to have an afternoon meeting. Worst thing you could do is have an afternoon meeting. You want your meetings in the morning. There were things like that. He even talked about, you know how um, they do earnings call? Investors do earning calls. And they did a study and they showed that those that, uh, meetings that were held early in the morning had better bumps in the stock market as compared to those that were done after one o'clock. It's like if you're in a court case and the judge is hungry before lunch, you're more likely to get a long prison sentence. We forget that we're just mammals and we, we have yes. rhythms, we have this hardwiring. And part of the problem, I, I mean, I'm just trying to snag a couple of great authors. Uh, so a lady called Linda Shaw, who uh, is uh, an author around neuroscience. I'm trying to get Dan Ariely on as well. Because I think right. unless we understand human beings, and very few people actually do, and salespeople in particular, we, we think we mm. understand people, but we really don't. And it, it's a, a crying shame because... Yeah, you should try to get Daniel Pink. I think you should try to get Daniel Pink. So I'll try to get Daniel. I've just downloaded when as well, whilst, uh, when you mentioned it. Um, so thank you for okay. that. Look, and Victor, we've come to uh, time now. Thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? If you just go to victorantonio.com or just type in Victor Antonio, you will find me. That's how popular I am, Marcus. <laughs> Are you the Maybe most not popular in the UK. Victor Antonio? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was very I disappointed. Thank you for having me, Marcus. It's been great. It's, it's a pleasure. I was very disappointed. I, I found there's another Marcus Kauke. So I was heartbroken because I was unique at one point. Okay. Um, You're unique I, in my eyes, Marcus. Yeah, You're I, unique in my eyes. Thank you. I'm a trendsetter. <laughs> there's another one. Victor, thank you. This has been blissfully uh, good fun. I hope we can do it again. I, I look forward so, to it. Great conversation. 
So thank you, Victor Antonio. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch at mcauchi at sandler.com. And if you think you would be a good guest or there's someone that you would like me to interview, then please get in touch on the same email. In the meantime, stay safe, happy selling. See you next time. Bye-bye.